Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Verrilli, founder and CEO of Project Purple and the host of the Project Purple Podcast. We're back in the studio today. It's been a couple weeks. I was away on vacation, but we've got a busy schedule coming up and I've got a special guest with us today coming to us today from California, Christina Helena. Christina, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Hey, thanks, Dino. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, I always say full disclosure, but that's kind of like a, a corny saying. But I always like to tell the audience, like I, I, I'm always like open. I'm an open book here uh, at Project Purple, and and you and I connected via social media. I think I got a Google alert. Uh, something came up somewhere. And I reached out and it was kind of, uh, and I'll be honest with you here. I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, not trying to be slick here or anything, but like, I was kind of thinking like, I don't know if she'll reach back out to me because when I read your bio, you, you've done Ted talk, you've spoken quite a bit, you, you, you've got acting experience, you've done a lot of great things, but then you were a pancreatic cancer survivor. So I was like, I don't know if she's going to reach back out to me. I don't know if this is like above my pay grade here on the Project Purple podcast. Uh, but then you did. You you reached right out or I didn't know if I had to go through an agent or something. And you reached out and I was like, wow, this is so awesome. And I know this has been a while. I think we connected back in like before the summer or maybe in like May. Wow, um, before the summer. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I know you've been traveling, I've been traveling. And the other thing too, and, and, you know, again, for the audience listening, you were so awesome because I asked you to reach out to uh, someone who's near and dear to my heart, uh, a family locally here in the New York area. Um, and, and you were like, no problem. So uh, I'm, I'm just excited to have you here on the podcast. It's always great to have survivors and, and you've got an amazing story to tell. Um, so I want to stop talking and <laughs> hand the mic over to you. Um, oh, Dino, thank you. That's such a sweet, kind introduction. I appreciate it. And all I keep thinking as I hear you speaking is it's human to human. That's all we yeah. got. And it. it's, it's a pleasure to connect with you. And it's a pleasure to connect with other pancreatic cancer survivors because there's not a lot of us and everyone's story is so different and powerful. And I love this sort of like innate ability to quickly get to our humanity through our stories. And I find that to be super important. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is like the one thing that's been really wild about the podcast here. You know, we had this idea to do this podcast. It started actually over four years ago. And and I don't think like, you know, now fast forward back then I could ever thought that we'd have so many survivors and so many connections that we would have made throughout the country and even throughout the world. I mean, we've had guests from Australia, from the UK uh, come on the podcast and cheer their journeys. So it's it's really special for me anytime we get survivors, and in particular, in your case, a long-term survivor. And I know you've got a pretty amazing story to share with our audience today um, about your journey with pancreatic cancer. And, and with that, I'm going to hand the mic over to you to share your background. And as I know we said before we hit record, um, you can stay as high level as you want. You can go as far back as, as you'd like. But uh, with that, the mic is yours to share your journey with pancreatic cancer. Thank you. Oh man, it's such an open, wide open intro. Where do we start? I mean, for me, it's like, for me, it's wild because I feel like the first credit, life credit I got was pancreatic cancer survivor because it happened at such a young age. I was a teenager. 
And all these beautiful things unfolded into like this journey of my life afterwards because of it. So it really all started when I was in college right there in New York City. And I was in my apartment. It was, I don't know, two in the two o'clock in the morning and I'm sitting there chilling, doing homework <laughs> while I'm talking to my boyfriend at the time on the phone, you know, exactly what teenagers should be doing in college. And I got a really sharp pain. And the second I got this sharp pain, like it knocked me out to the point that I was like, fell to the ground. And when I fell to the ground, I had a really bizarre experience happen. At that point, I left my body and I had an out of body experience in which I was communicating with my grandfather who told me that I was sick and told me that I was dying specifically. And that experience with my grandfather was so bizarre. I think most people um, wouldn't really know what to do with something like that. But for me, because of the nature of my spirituality, I listened. And when I came out of this really wild out-of-body experience that I had, the first thing I did was call Delta Airlines. I got on a plane, I flew to Detroit, um, reconnected with my family and started going to different doctors. And first doctor, nothing's wrong with you. Second doctor, nothing's wrong with you. Third doctor, nothing's wrong with you. And they were checking all the obvious things as they should because I was an 18 year old with chest pain hmm. and that's it. No other symptoms. I just had chest pain, but like really intense chest pain. So I got checked for the obvious stuff, acid reflux, or maybe something was going on with my heart, or maybe something was going on with my tummy and all justifiable. But as doctors were saying to me that I was fine, I was getting more and more scared because I knew I wasn't fine. I knew that I wasn't okay. And I finally went to my family doctor again and said, you know, listen, you've sent me to all these other doctors and everyone is saying that I'm okay, that my heart is fine, that my lungs are fine, that I don't have acid reflux. I don't know what's going on. So the doctor at that point suggested that maybe I was psychosomatic, hmm. that I wanted to be sick or that I, maybe I was just so stressed out in college. And, you know, at the time it was really scary to hear that looking back now, I understand, I understand why I wasn't getting diagnosed quickly. You don't expect an 18 year old to have massive pancreatic tumors all over their pancreas period. At the time, I didn't know that I didn't understand how like nuts this was now I do. So I have understanding for the doctor who suggested that, but if I have to tell you, if it wasn't for like my stubborn Greek self, <laughs> my stubborn Greek 18 year old, that was just like, no, you're wrong. And something's wrong. And I want you to check and don't get me wrong. Like I had no idea what I was talking about. I was like, give me a CAT scan. And I had no clue what a CAT scan was. I had heard of it. And he's like, no, you don't need a CAT scan. Well, we finally hashed it out and he ordered like an ultrasound, 
which now I, I understand is not really like this really big test, but at the time I was like, sure, I'll take it, whatever it is. <sighs> but it was that ultrasound that they managed to find these masses on my pancreas. And it was that ultrasound that became the catalyst to in, an immediate CAT scan. And it wasn't even more than an hour from the end of the CAT scan before my parents got a phone call saying, your daughter has pancreatic cancer and six months to live. This all happened within a span of four weeks. It all was moving so quickly. So when my parents, when I came home from the hospital that day after my CAT scan, my parents had already received that news. And I walked into the house and, you know, my dad's super Greek. <laughs> my mom's not Greek, but I call her an honorary Greek. And my dad's got this like big dramatic look on his face. And I immediately think, okay, someone died in the Greek family. And um, I said, you know, like the first thing that came out of my mouth was who died. Hmm. So my dad just looks like the end of the world has just arrived. And he's like, nobody died. And I'm like, okay, then what, what happened? Why does, why do you have that tragic look on your face? And he's like, come inside the house. I'm like, no. And now I'm like starting, you know, I'm like, I'm like a, like a rambunctious, like a little teenager. And I'm like starting to think it has something to do with me. I'm like, no, I'm not coming in the house. Like, tell me like, what's going on. Like the house is like danger zone. And my mom walks over to me and she says, your doctor called and said, you have six months to live and you have pancreatic cancer. And all that registered for me was six months to live because I don't know that I really understood what a pancreas was. Mm. So that was a pretty intense experience to stand there on my driveway and have to like face my whole life, have to face everything I've done everything I haven't done, everything I've ignored. It's really an awakening experience to be told you have a time clock. And for me, it's probably one of the best moments of my life because when you're given a time clock, or at least in my experience, what I realized is you lose all ability to BS yourself right then and there, like it's gone. Like that ability to like, just BS yourself and tell yourself lies or wear the mask of like who you truly are, like goes away immediately. And I had to like face this like intense truth of life in that moment. And it became sort of this, wow, oh my goodness, I have to survive because I haven't done this and I haven't done this and I haven't become this. And like all these things, like a mathematical equation, just going, it's quick. So the next phase became just like finding a surgeon and really understanding like what I could do to survive. And it happened such a long time ago that we didn't know as much about pancreatic cancer or the Whipple surgery, not nearly as much as we know now. And I was also in a part of the world, part of America that maybe didn't necessarily have doctors that were super aware or up to date with everything related to pancreatic cancer. So I got caught in a little bit of, uh, what's the word? Lack of communication, lack of knowledge. I was being told one thing, right? 
the reality is I probably shouldn't have been told that I had six months to live because I believed it. The reality was there was a way to save my life and it was through a Whipple surgery. But then finding a surgeon that had done an ample amount of Whipple surgeries, or mm-hmm. I'd met a lot of surgeons who had done one or two. And that's it, like, it just became like truth bomb after truth bomb after truth bomb. Like at every piece of information I was getting from, from doctors and surgeons and just anybody I was speaking to was just like, what, what you've only done two? wait a minute, this Whipple surgery thing is kind of a big deal. Like I was just so much in the unknown and learning so much so quickly, so fast. And I think the hardest truth bomb was when I went to meet a surgeon and he said very nonchalantly, okay, we're going to remove your stomach, your pancreas, your gallbladder, your duodenum and your small intestine. And I was like, wait, what? Wait a minute. That's what you have to do. So like, I was learning all these things. And as like an 18 year old, I'm just like in pure shock. So I, I want to jump in here real quick, though. Not to put you on the spot to ask you how old you are, but so oh, don't even go there. Dino. We're not going to go gonna, there. But... And I'm going to stop you right there. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. Not so a, never we're, we're going to make some, but we're going to make some assumptions here. The World Wide Web, as we know it today, wasn't there. So it's not like you could go onto the internet and type in, you know, top Whipple surgeons in the United States. No, I, you can, because that's exactly what I did. So, but though, I guess my point here that I want to try to put across is the speed that we have today in terms of information, this information superhighway that the internet has become with disease mm-hmm. and cancer and WebMD, how people can diagnose themselves, that wasn't the case back then. So getting this information probably took a little while to get like from, to get coordination, mm-hmm. like the court, you know, like now like you could go, like I can go online right now and I can book a, an appointment at MSK for like, I don't know, the first available opening, which could be next week if my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer with an with an oncologist. Now I put in air yeah. quotes here for our listeners, you know, with an oncologist. Does that mean you're getting the top oncologist for GI cancer? I don't know, probably not. Yeah. But so you're 18 years old, which is one, being 18, most 18 year olds, as you said, you were in your room talking to your boyfriend, probably worried about homework, which you were doing, which was good for you. Uh, but most most 18 year olds, most 18 year olds in the city are worried about like where they're going out tonight, who they're, you know, following on social media. Well, that's now, but back then, you know, where they're going, where they're partying, who they're hanging out with, you know, how they getting through the weekend, not necessarily worried about fighting cancer and having six months to live. Um, so you have that piece, one, um, but then also too, just, I, I think just like for the audience and also for me, that had to be like crazy. I get, I don't, I don't have a better word, but like to, to bring all this information in and where you're getting that information from, I mean, even in this day and age, as, as great as the information superhighway, as I mentioned is, it's still super daunting and it's still like nauseating the amount of information that you have. I just can't fathom you being 18 years old. And having to kind of, and even I'm sure your family was assisting, but that's a lot. Okay. There's a lot here to unpack. <laughs> so I I should preface by saying I, I probably process information in a very peculiar way because 
I mean, this all started with an out of body experience where mm-hmm. I was being told that I was sick and I, in general, very much connect to people and look into their eyes and see how I feel about them and see, okay, can we have a real conversation here more so than looking them up on the internet? For me, I knew nothing about the medical industry. I don't even think I even understood how cancer cells work. I didn't know. I don't even know that I knew what a tumor was until somebody explained it to me. And granted, I should preface that English is my second language. And I came from a different country and I wasn't born in the United States of America, even though I'm I'm an American. So like there was also like that language barrier of like learning English, but then understanding medical language while you're learning English. And I didn't go to the web to search for information, even though it was available for me, because everybody that I was coming in contact with was picking up the phone and calling exactly who they knew because of the nature of my age. I think at the time it was so shocking that I had pancreatic tumors as a teenager that every single doctor I spoke to picked up the phone And the other doctor on the other end, instead of making me wait maybe two months for an appointment was saying, come down to my office right now. So because everybody was so helpful, once the diagnosis was there and everyone was just picking up the phone. And I realized really quickly that what I had was very serious because I Google searched doctors who surgeons that were doing the Whipple surgery, I would call their office. And all I would say is, hi, I'm an 18 year old with pancreatic tumors. Can I please speak with Dr. So-and-so? And they're like, um, yes, please hold. Oh, so like yeah. everybody was like very receptive to me. And every, I think everybody felt bad. And I was starting to see that I was getting doctors on the phone almost immediately. Wow. And I went with that. I really was just going with my gut and my intuition. I was meeting surgeon after surgeon. And because I didn't understand everything that the Swipple surgery was going to entail, I didn't understand cancer cells. I didn't under, I really did not understand so much of what I was being told. The one thing that I did understand is truth. It was humanity. It was the one thing I could understand is like looking in a doctor's eyes and saying, Ooh, this doctor cares about me versus this doctor doesn't really even see the fact that I'm an 18 year old with my whole life ahead of me. And that's how I chose my surgeon. I chose my surgeon because I looked into his eyes and I knew that I had my best chance with him because when I looked in other surgeons eyes, I felt this disconnect. I felt this you're really excited about this, but I don't think you're excited for the right reasons. You're excited because maybe I'm like super young and that made me feel uncomfortable. Or I would watch, I had one doctor I met and he kept like checking his watch, like, and all I could feel while I was talking to him was, wow, you have someone else, somewhere else better to be. You're in a rush to go somewhere else. And I don't like that. Hmm. So that's the reason I didn't choose him. I don't know that most people are going into like medical appointments and choosing their doctors in that capacity. But when you don't understand the medical industry and you don't understand really what you have and you're, you feel this time clock of the six months moving quickly and you're up against with this time clock and you're up against with this very 
dangerous surgery or difficult surgery. And then you're up against the odds of most surgeons haven't done very many of these. You start to very quickly, or at least I did, because again, I found out I was sick through this, a similar way. I put all my chips on my intuition, all of it. I didn't listen to anyone other than my intuition because it was the only thing that was never wrong. So powerful um, hearing you tell that story because I, I hope for people listening at home really take that to heart because I think, I'll say this, before you and I hit record, we were talking about, we were both in Europe and how lifestyle and stress and everything. I think for our listeners here in the United States, I think a lot of times people just make decisions because, it, and they make those decisions not based on their intuition. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say this is I've had so many families reach out and say, and I'm sure you've heard this, well, so-and-so is a really good doctor, but they're, but every time we go in, doesn't seem to pay attention, mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't really answer all our questions, but everyone else says he's a really good doctor or she's a, he or she is a really good doctor, but they know internally it's not the right fit but then they still go with it because either they're at XYZ institution or they have so-and-so recommended them. Um, and I, and, and I, I don't, you know, there's like this psychological piece here that I think is so critical, Christina, in fighting pancreatic cancer, but all cancers that patients always overlook that. And so it, it's just so powerful to hear you say like, hey, you trusted your intuition, you trusted your gut. This was the guy that you knew was going to be the person to do the surgery and it made sense and you felt you were 120% bought into that. And so was he into your care, right? But I, I mean, it's I don't have the answer to it. I, I just think it's it, to to why people do that, but it's so powerful to hear for you and I hope our audience listening and watching understands that and, and you know, really takes that, you know, and, and hopefully making some of their decisions. Like they have to feel, you always have to feel comfortable in, in the doctor. Just because he says something doesn't mean that, and if you don't feel comfortable, it doesn't mean you go with it. I feel like sometimes people do that. They just, they don't ask, they don't ask questions or they don't self-advocate, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and you got to feel 120% in. Yeah. Uh, so much here, so much here, <laughs> Dino. Where did you take us? Do, do we want okay. to go down that rabbit hole? We can go oh, down the rabbit hole. Oh, we're going hole down this rabbit hole. We're doing it. We're going. <laughs> so I really, I love everything that you just said. For me, I had no way to quantify what the doctors were saying to me as valid or invalid, truth or fault, like wrong, like go with this doctor or don't go with this doctor. I've learned over time of being what I like to call a professional patient, that there are different level of healthcare. There's different level of doctors, different level of training. And that doesn't mean that some like, and it doesn't mean that like, if you go to a great Ivy league school, you're a better doctor than a doctor who didn't. It has nothing to do with that. 
I do believe that choosing a doctor is very much the patient's responsibility. We don't, we think that it's the other way around that a doctor chooses us. No, we have the power to choose our doctors. And I oftentimes go see a lot of doctors and I'll meet a lot of different doctors and see who resonates well for me. But when I was 18 and making these decisions, I knew that I couldn't make the decisions based on something quantifiable because I didn't understand what was going on. So I knew that I had to make my decision based on something else and that I had to tap into my intuition. Now that's something I had done from a really young age as a child. So I was very much used to that because I became, I tr I've trusted my intuition from a very young age and I had evidence as a child and a teenager that your intuition is valid and it's correct. And I've come to believe that our intuition is our inner divinity. It's the most genius part of ourselves, my personal opinion. So when we have the courage to trust our intuition, we get the highest level of truth. Now, why do we ignore it? Why do we ignore it? I, well, I was going to throw something in here. I, I think our subconscious, which drives our conscious, doesn't allow us to. Well, what is it that controls that that doesn't allow us to? I think humans as a whole are... You wake up in the morning, we're very um, ritualistic, right? Whatever our rituals are, right? And yeah, you can change those rituals, like eating healthy and, and doing certain things. And I think we, we get into these rituals or these patterns of how we do things day in, day out. And that's typically driven by our subconscious and whether there's factors of influence from the subconscious, from family, social media, work, uh, friends that drive what our conscious does. So I, I think kind of like the exterior of those influences kind of create us, right? Like in a, in a way, mm -hmm. like our experiences that we experience. Um, I'm a big growth guy, Christina. So I'm always about growth. And I, I think um, there's a saying when I, I did some training years ago and, and how this, uh, I'll get this, how this comes back to this is like, you know, the, the amount of uncertainty in someone's life determines the quality of their life was one of the trainers. I remember he's, he said that. And I was like, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, you know, you got to get out of your comfort zone and, and getting out of that comfort zone, you know, potentially gives you better quality of life. Like if you were scared to do presentations in front of people and then all of a sudden you become this public speaker, you know, you, you're going to have other opportunities. You're going to feel more confident, confidence, you know, we're bringing other things. You'll lose weight. You'll start running, start working out, you know, better health, you know, maybe better job, those kinds of things. So I think for, for, you know, people, um, you know, to come back to this, I think like societal norms are that, like you said, something very powerful there about a doctor that goes to an Ivy League school is like, just because you go to an Ivy League school doesn't mean you're the best doctor in the world for whatever specialty you eventually become. But I think the norm, the societal norms that maybe here and in certain parts of the world that people buy into, 
drive that subconscious to think that like, hey, this doctor went to XYZ Ivy League and he did his residency in in the city at XYZ hospital or institution. Oh, he must be really good. So even though the guy's a jerk and, you know, is looking at his watch because he's got a tea time or he's got another appointment back to back to back and doesn't really give you the answers you want to hear, he's still a good doctor. So I think that's kind of driven a little bit by the subconscious and then by the uh, exterior things that, uh, that we believe to be norms. Hmm. We choose to believe some of those things. And yeah. sometimes we choose to believe things because we don't want to see the truth underneath them. And this is the hard, beautiful, incredible lesson I learned from having a Whipple surgery and having five of my organs removed was that in that glimpse of a moment when I was given a time clock, I had to see myself in a way where I couldn't BS myself. And that was really painful. I don't know that we have the capacity to trust our intuition to the level that we have access to and can if we don't take full ownership for ourselves. Because to trust your intuition requires this like innate, powerful confidence in yourself because nobody can tell you if it's right or wrong other than you. And if you're wrong, then that full responsibility falls on thyself. What I discovered through pancreatic cancer is that our scars, things that we don't wanna see about ourselves actually hurt us in the long-term and affect our ability to have that self-ownership and that self-trust, which is why we don't trust ourselves when we go and meet a doctor who's not in alignment with us. We stay there because whatever I'm feeling about it must not be true. When the reality is everything that you're feeling about it is true. But why is it that we don't trust ourselves? For me, it became down to facing my scars. And that's why I developed the platform, My Scar is Sexy because it was like this shame that we have about our scars or things that we don't want to face or don't want to deal that keep us staying a version of who we are, but not necessarily the authentic version of who we are. We wear this mask and we pretend to be somebody else because if somebody found out about our scars, then it would be too painful and we don't want to be unveiled. But that also hurts us, or at least it was hurting me because becoming that version of me was not allowing me to be my authentic self, which had ownership and self-responsibility and confidence. So when I needed to access that utmost intuition, that utmost ownership of myself that, no, I'm walking into this office and I don't feel comfortable. I don't think this doctor's in alignment for me that I can stand up and say that to myself doesn't have to be like this wide open, loud thing. I can walk out and say, nope, that doctor's not for me. Nope, this person's not for me. Nope, this job's not for me. And over time, I strengthened that within myself that I, I've become capable to keep making decisions from that place. But if we don't make decisions from that place, then what we're strengthening is constantly suppressing what our intuition is telling us, constantly suppressing what we really believe is right for us. But because society tells us not to do it or culture or our family or our environment, then we continue to just keep becoming a version that is not truly us. 
This is not something that changes overnight. It's a constant daily practice of who you choose to be. And for me, what I discovered was the catalyst in between the two is that ability to like face our scars, face ourselves in our totality, not our partial self, to be able to have that ownership, to be who we really are against all odds or against what maybe the majority of the people or the society believes. Would you consider that acceptance as facing your scars or does it go beyond that? I think it goes, well, depends what you mean by acceptance, right? I think acceptance means something else, something different to everyone. Like what does acceptance look like? What's the definition of acceptance? For somebody, it may be, okay, I have mentally accepted something, but I haven't told people about it or um, I'm not open about it. For other people, it may be, Uh, like a level of forgiveness. So it's really hard for me to say what I consider that acceptance because I think acceptance means something different for everyone. For me, it's when we remove all that need to be something else that we can then have access to what we reference or what I reference or come to understand the true self. And I believe that the intuition our instincts, those impulses, that part of your soul that like aches at you to do something that's ignored so often by people is like the truest form of communication we can have. And again, I will preface by saying, I feel this way because I've had so much experience and listening to that part of myself and moments where I was in danger and moments where my life has been threatened and moments where I'm facing this cancer, I'm facing like a time clock and I've had the courage to just put all my chips on the table and just like not listen to the outside world and just listen to my soul and my intuition. And it's always turned out to be great, like really life-saving. So I have experience that constantly says, Christina, just listen, this is scary, this is courageous. I know everyone thinks you're nuts right now, but you know you're not. And you know this has saved your life before and it's going to do it again. It's powerful. I, I don't, I, I just gonna be honest, I, I don't know how many people are there, you know, that at openly admit it. And, and the reason why I bring up acceptance is because I've had a lot of survivors on the podcast, a lot, probably over a hundred. And there are common themes and there's things that I have seen. Naturally, not all a hundred have, have probably listened to each's episode, but I've been here to listen through. And there's something that I guess I would call it acceptance that I've seen with a lot of them. Some of them have it early on when they fight. And some of them get it at, at some point in their journey. But when they do, it's wild the change that's created. Mm. I don't know, to your point, if it's an intuition thing. I use the term acceptance because it's them living the life that they see for them mm-hmm. and not letting cancer dictate their life. So when I say acceptance, that's what I mean by that. But it's this piece that, and it's kind of crazy because you think like, 
wow, we should all feel that way, right? We should live the the way we want to live, the lives we we want to create, whatever people's dreams or aspirations are. Relating to this podcast, when we have these survivors on and they realize that through this tragic thing called pancreatic cancer, you know, they're given the sentence or this diagnosis that, hey, you have six months to live or you have, you know, we don't know how much time you have left. But then they realize like, okay, I'm, I'm living my life now mm-hmm. and I'm not letting cancer dictate that. Yeah. I think it's different for everyone. It's, it's so hard to tap into somebody else's experience when we're all in our own individual experience. And I don't think any of this is a switch. It's a constant practice mm-hmm. about like mindset and like that inner dialogue for me, it was really interesting to discover my inner dialogue within myself. And again, I was an 18 year old facing something that most 18 year olds don't have to deal with or even be aware of, at least at that time. So I felt like I was dealing with these existential questions about life, survival, death, mortality. I was dealing with a whole category that I knew nothing about, which was medical and cancer and cancer cells and tumors and surgeries. And it was like, there was so much new language and the experience brought upon all these existential, like adult things. Like an 18 year old doesn't think about their death. I think I'm, when I'm 18, I'm like, you know, like you said earlier, 18 year olds are trying to figure out where they're going to go party, hang out with their friends. And they think they're going to live forever. Mm -hmm. So I had to think about things that I wasn't expecting to think about for another 50, 60 years. And all of a sudden I have to think about my death. I have to think about where I want to be buried if I die. And I want to tell my parents that to make sure they bury me where I want to be buried. And I had to think about saying goodbye to my brother and sister because I was told that there was a really high chance I wouldn't wake up from the operation because it's dangerous. And whether it was as dangerous as I was told or also like how the whole experience, like just the experience alone is traumatic. So there was like a lot of things I was thinking about that weren't a normal 18 year old's thought process. And acceptance for me didn't come immediately because I don't think the whole experience hit me till a year and a half later. And then I can tell you the moment it really hit me was at the five year mark, because I had heard so many nurses say to me, oh, most people don't survive a Whipple surgery more than five years, more than five years, more than five years. And every time I heard it, I just ignored it. But guess what? Like you said, my subconscious probably wasn't ignoring it because on my five-year anniversary, I cried. I mean, I cried like the hyperventilating crying, like crying, like, like I couldn't stop crying. And I was like, why are you crying so much? And it was like, you hit the five-year mark. And I was like, wow, you believe that? Well, no, I told myself not to believe it, but because I heard it, it was in there. It's so interesting, right? The language around survival and the language we, the the inner language, the inner conversation, is it negative self-talk? Is it positive self-talk? What is that experience like? And that experience is so different for everyone. And then, you know, I was an 18 year old um, dealing with a physical scar across my body Hmm. when Eight, you know, teenagers are already body self-conscious, especially a female body self-conscious. And 
like what did what was that experience like? And at the time, I had a particular experience specific to the scar. Uh, somebody said something to me that was painful, and you know, somebody said to me like, "Who's going to love you now with a 13-inch scar across your body?" Which was not something I thought about. But once they brought it to my attention, it was like, whoa, that's that gutted me. And the first thought I had was, oh, they're right. Who is going to love me with a 13-inch scar? The second thought I had was, whoa, wait a minute. It was like this other side of Christina that like came in there like a ninja. I was like, whoa, wait a minute, girl. What do you mean? Who's going to love you with a 13-inch scar? Don't tell me like you believe that. And it was like this conversation between like these to Christina's that were like becoming, I was becoming, I was a, practically a kid. And I, in that moment, again, I saw my, my ability to have negative self-talk. And I was like, whoa, do you believe that? No, I don't believe it. Maybe I do believe it. Are they right? So it was like, there's so much to the experience. And I know that I've had a very unique experience because of the nature of my age and having to think about some things that maybe an 18 year old doesn't think about. And I had to be forced to think about them and grow up very quickly from that, specifically around death. And I've, I've talked a lot about death as a speaker. I talk a lot about adversity, overcoming adversity. I talk a lot about mental health and also our fear or our perceived fear of death because Oh, you have a question. I can see you thinking. <laughs> I do, but I wrote something down, which goes along that line. So yeah, being 18 and dealing with all that is totally different than someone who, let's say, you know, 55 or 60 or 70 for that matter, right? Yeah. But you're still dealing with the same ball of wax, like you know, that this cancer is what it is, right? And it does what it does, whether you're 18 or whether you're 70 years old. And I'm not trying to downplay either situation, right? But the cancer still, the cancer doesn't care, right? Like cancer, the cancer doesn't, doesn't care. doesn't care. You're right. It doesn't but care I about your- that. And at the time, I think for me, that my experience is, 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 is different because I was, for me, I was more bothered by this idea of facing my mortality versus the cancer. And whether that was me just in survival me mechanism, like just trying to survive this thing that I didn't really understand and compartmentalizing it, or I felt more curious and like torn and affected by facing my death versus this Thing called cancer because the first thought I had when my mom told me I had six months to live was oh no 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 I can't die yet my dull my my soul will die in silence and it was like I I I was just so concerned about the evolution of my soul than cancer so for me my attention and my mind went more to what is the soul and what is this thing called death and I didn't expect to have these these thoughts or try to figure this out this early, but now because I'm being cornered by death, I better figure this out before these six months come up and I end up in a place that I don't want to end up in. 
and I come from a very dogmatic country as well. So like this, you know, influence of like death and religion and God was very much there, but also cancer. I couldn't figure that out. I was like the silly part of me was like, oh, maybe we'll figure out this death thing before we figure out this pancreatic cancer thing, because this was so foreign to me. And I just put that all in like my surgeon's hands. I was like, okay, yes, I trust you. You're my best chance. I know that. Like I looked in his eyes and I was like, this is it. You and I are a team. If I don't survive this with you, I'm not surviving this period. And I felt so much conviction in that truth. I knew I chose the right person. There was like no doubt. I knew it before I even spoke to him. I could just tell by the way he was looking at me. I could tell by the way he was walking towards me. It was a really powerful moment. Yeah. And hearing you say that, so I just wrote, that's the power release, right? Like you release all that tension that you have mm-hmm. about fighting this cancer mm-hmm. and you put that into it. But, going back to what we talked about before is like, you have to have that connection. If you don't believe in that doctor, a hundred and a million percent, right? Mm-hmm. To infinity, that this is the doctor that is going to be the doctor to save you, then it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I but, agree. I but agree. By do, but by doing that, you focus on you. You don't focus on the cancer. Yeah, I guess I never thought of it that way. Right, but that's that, that's true. You know, that's what happens here. Like, so then you have this this weight is lifted off. Like, hey, it's in you know from a spiritual standpoint, it's in God's hands. Whoever you believe, you know, it's in their hands. And also, this surgeon and the doctors that I have chosen because I believe in them. I have faith that they are the ones for me, and they are gonna solve this problem for me. They are smart enough. They are intelligent enough. They are experienced enough. I worry about me. And that's such a power because as I said before, like the cancer doesn't define you. It doesn't dictate. You're dictating the terms and you're releasing yeah. that and you have the power now to focus on you. Yes, that's exactly right, Dino, because I can't con- control cancer. I can't do a Whipple surgery on myself. These are things out of my sphere. I can't control these. I have to go to people who can control them. All I can control though is my choice. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel so strongly about our intuition, those little hunches, those little moments, because that is your choice. That is your soul speaking to you, whether, you know, at moments I call it soul at moments, it's like intuition. It's our divinity. There's something that is speaking to us and that is our power to make the right choice. And the right choice may not always be conventional. And the right choice may not always seem as the right choice to everyone around you or to society or to culture or to your family or to even doctors who, you know, are perceived to be the best doctors in the world. What is the right choice for you? And for me, that was really important because I wanted my soul to die, um, I was going to die. It was really important for me that I died resolved, which is what I talk about in my TED talk. It was, it was hands down my number one priority. My TED talk was my dad. My TED talk is called dear unresolved soul. It's not death. You fear it's life. And that was very much me in the moment that I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So powerful. 
So you have the Whipple. Yeah. And then do you do chemo post-Whipple or what was your, so you had the Whipple, your recovery, you said five organs. I know, I mean, we've talked about the Whipple. It's not an easy surgery. Some of them get really complex. Some people, it takes months and months and months to recover and heal from it. Um, so how was the Whipple for you? The Whipple was a huge success and I did not have chemo. I believe there was some radiation while I was on the table, but the Whipple was a big success for me. It's hard to tell like at what point I consider myself healed because the whole eating process Hmm. and learning what you can eat and can't eat and what works well with your body and what doesn't took a long time for me. And that was a very big challenge. It took a very long time to feel like I had like a variety of foods that I could eat. But I also think that part of that was, it was just such a scary experience that the further away I got from the Whipple, the more and more and more I was coming to like this understanding of what had just happened. Again, this happened so quickly from the moment I had the pain in my apartment when I was in college to my Whipple, less than two months. Wow. This was quick. This was quick. It was like one doctor after another from to a surgeon to another surgeon to we're putting you on the calendar and a week you're, you're coming in. So it's like, I didn't even really have time to process. I didn't really have time to understand. I was just, and I had completely surrendered all of that into my intuition because the first thing that I had was an intuition with this like out of body experience. And then I started to see that people weren't necessarily convinced that I was sick and that scared me. And the only thing that never betrayed me during this whole experience was my intuition. So when I found out that my intuition was right from the get-go, that's when I just tuned everyone out. Like, hard, like I had like this, I tuned everyone out. I didn't listen to anyone. I took complete control. I was extremely proactive. I made all the phone calls. I called all the doctors. I sat on the phone with them. I drove to different States to meet with them, flew different States. I mean, I did everything and I just would sit in front of them and let them speak. And all I would do is like, just tune into my intuition. And I was like, yes, no, what are we doing here? No. Okay. Let's go. Next one. To a point where my mom was like, what are you doing? Like you have to choose the surgeon. I was like, "Hmm, no, we haven't found the right one for me yet. And my mom was like starting to get like really worried because she's like, oh my gosh, this kid I have, (laughs) my poor mother. (laughs) But I mean, bless her. And you know, like now she's like, she understands because all my parents want is for me to survive. All my parents want is for this thing to be over. And I recognize that. But wanting it to be over doesn't mean choosing the first person. Because that doesn't mean it's over. That might be it's over, over. Like, and I didn't want it to be over, over. I just wanted the cancer thing to be over. And I understood these dynamics that take place between the family and the doctors and this disease and this threat of your life. I mean, it's all so complicated. It's It's not so easy. There's so many things at force when you go through an experience like this. As we were talking before, 
how things are in certain countries. And, and I think here, not to be conspiracy theorists, but I think it's by design that it's so complex and it's so confusing here in the United States. What do you mean? I, I don't, I think our medical system uh, has a way of really confusing people very easily. And I think by design, there's like this orchestrated chaos for patients and families um, when making decisions that are life and death sometimes mm. in fighting cancer. I, I think we do, I, I in, you know, like th there's, There's advantages to like a full healthcare system like we see in Europe, uh, mm -hmm. universal healthcare, right? Whereas here in the United States, um, you know, you have insurance companies, you have the FDA, you have government agencies, and then you have the institutions, right? And everyone's got their hand in the jar. And I don't mean this in any disrespect or trying to be insensitive here, but we're all paying customers, right? If you've got insurance or even if you don't have insurance, you'll They'll still treat you, um, but you know where the, the I I think sometimes, and I'm not I, I'm not trying to generalize, but I think there are some systems and some doctors, just like there's bad doctors, bad accountants, bad bad every profession, right? But I I, I think here in the United States, we just try to make things so complex and so so dysfunctional sometimes for patients and their families. That's my perspective coming from where I've come from being with it with my dad. I mean, we lived in Connecticut when my dad was sick. We were 20 minutes from Yale and Yale's a fine institution. And there was another fine institution that we started at. We eventually got to Yale, but you know, Yale had its complexities. And, and I, I think, you know, what I've seen over the last 12 years, I don't think much has gotten any better um, in terms of like this organized chaos for some families, they, they go through it just like we went through it. And I think other families, like, you know, they, they either get the information from the super highway of the internet or they get access through like groups like PanCan and some of the other groups that offer information. But then again, then sometimes too much information is not the right information that the patients need to have. So I, I just think here, and I guess my point is, I, I think there's like, sometimes there's like this orchestrated chaos in our healthcare system here in the United States because of the way the system is set up. A, it's super competitive. Like, you know, we were talking about New York. New York has, you know, six or seven hospitals all within, you know, the, the, the Manhattan area and they all fight for the same patients, right? Like it's, it's insane. It's insanity to see that happen sometimes. And I've seen it firsthand with patients going to Columbia, they're going to MSK, then they're going to Cornell, then they're going to NYU, you know, and then you see all these doctors leaving, you know, leave Columbia, go to NYU. Why? Why are they doing that? Like, if you're in New York, why wouldn't you stay somewhere? Oh, because more money or you get a higher position, you know? Like, is the quality of care changing for the patients by doing that? I don't know. You went there. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't, like, oh, no, no. I, uh, this it's is no what? holds barred. Like, we do no, not, no, like, I, like I don't this. care. Like, we talk faith. If, if, you know, drugs, like, if people have done, we've had people come on that smoke marijuana. And if that works, <laughs> hey, do it. We've had people you know, go to I love hotels. this. This we've is had, great. And we are, we're, this isn't live, but this will air. Like we've had people talk about holistic stuff, Christina. Um, you know what? 
like I don't throw out names, but like um, you know, not every system. I did throw out some names here, but I'm not saying that those are the names. But you know, like this is our job's not to be like to BS anyone here. This is yeah. we're, we're talking real here, and I think people need to hear this. And no, this I, is love like, I love this it. I love it. I I love that you know you're saying here. Like I, I wrote this down. Like you were self-advocating before self-advocating was a thing. <laughs> like, think about this. I was self-advocating before I even knew self-advocating, what that's that even what, meant. Exactly. But that's but like the power. where did that come from for me? Where did that come from for me? Right? Well, yeah, but I, I, I have a question to that and I don't want to, I, I do want to yeah, bring I, that I have up. an answer to your first question though. <laughs> yeah. So you answer that and I'll me, get back to that self-advocating. Great. And then the reason I, I, I want to share something, and I think I have alternative perspective here. I come from a country that has a national healthcare system, where if you have pancreas, if you have cancer, or let's say you go to the doctor and you don't feel well, and the doctor says, "Okay, you need a CAT scan," and you're part of that national healthcare, you're going to wait for that CAT scan six months. I would yes. be dead. I am convinced. Now I don't know this for sure. This is just, you know, Christina's own opinion. I'm convinced that if I was still living in my homeland, I would not have survived what I had. Now, somebody could come in and argue, say, well, maybe you wouldn't have gotten what you had. Okay. That's a whole other rabbit hole that I can't control. So we're not going there. My point is, while I do believe that our medical system in America could benefit from some improvements, as always, I understand the other the national healthcare system from countries where it's not efficient, where you're mm-hmm. waiting six months for a CAT scan because you have some chest pain. You know how many people would die within that six months? Yeah. In America, I got my CAT scan within hours, not even a day or a week or a month. The doctor called when those ultrasound results came in and said, I need her in a CAT scan machine right now. And the doctor said, send her over to the hospital. We'll put her in as soon as she gets here. Like that level of care, that level of access in America. Now I understand not everybody has it because I had an insurance plan that I paid for and that allowed me that access. And perhaps other people, not everybody gets to afford that. What I appreciate about it is that I know that I can work hard to attain it and have access to it. And that is what saved my life. The nature of the speed in which we have access to healthcare in America, that anyone can walk into an ER and get treated, whether they have insurance or not. Like, don't get me wrong, the aftermath of that can get really complicated Mm -hmm. and really intense and a lot of bills. But if you need it, you can walk in and get it. And that's not something that in Europe, all countries have, at least the country that I came from. In Europe, they have a national health care, but then everybody's buying private insurance because the quality yeah. of their national health care. Like I have a picture I'm going to send you. I was in the ER in the hospital and the general surgery sign for general surgery was a piece of paper with a marker that said general surgery yeah. because the funding is not there. Correct. So to, you know, to like, we can look at our healthcare in America and say, oh, it's this. And it's, you know, like all about money and it's all about this. And you're right. There's, there's so much of it that could improve. But if I look at the other stuff that I had access to, I much rather take what's here. And it, and it's hard because 
as an American, we don't have experiences of what healthcare is in other countries where it's not nearly as good of what, than what we have. And the doctors we have in America are exceptional. We're so lucky to live in a country where we have access. Is it the best? Is it 100% efficient? Is it ideal? We have, we have room to improve. We definitely do. But for me, um, especially having been in America only a couple of years when this happened to me, I know hands down, if it wasn't for the healthcare, the insurance plan I had that gave me access to certain hospitals, that gave me access to certain doctors and covered things to a level like practically almost 100%, there's no way that I would be in good shape as I am right now. I don't disagree with that. I'm a A type, so I strive to be better. And I think our healthcare system can be um, improved for everyone. And to I your agree. point, you know, I, I think, you know, there's just areas of the country where, I mean, I don't even say areas. I mean, even here in Connecticut, they, people have bad experiences all the time that shouldn't, right? That That should not be the norm where like you have two different people go into the same hospital and get two different types of care, you know, quality of care. Um, and, and I, I think the one thing that I struggle with a bit in this discussion is that that same point here is that like, you know, patients in Indiana, especially with this disease, probably don't get the level of care that the patient in New York gets. Mm-hmm. And to me, that shouldn't happen in this country. We are far too advanced. Um, and I don't, and you know, I just know from, and I, I guess I use the example of Canada. Uh, our partners up in Canada, when they when pancreatic cancer in the last couple of years, they made it a requirement to have genetic testing done as soon as someone comes in and is diagnosed. In Canada, that was like an overnight thing. Universal healthcare, boom, it happened. Here in the United States, it was an NIH guideline. Mm-hmm. So again, the patient in Southern Indiana, um, and I know this for a fact, uh, we had a patient reach out to us, Southern Indiana, they didn't get genetic testing right away. Um, you know, until they found out and then they advocated for themselves, right? And we go back to this self-advocacy piece, uh, which is so critical, but you know, the patient walking in any of the centers in New York, they got genetic testing. So, you know, we've got to do better. Um, I don't disagree with you. I mean, we do have, uh, um, you know, some of the best here in the United States and, and compared, I think acute care here in the United States, having a baby, breaking a leg, cancer, um, to some degree, you know, is phenomenal compared to overseas. Um, I think some of the things that I like about like a universal healthcare system, as I said, was, you know, like you, you do have the ability, you know, within that system to make changes across the board and everyone does it. And I think that if we could find a way here in the United States with whether it's drugs or access to alternatives, you know, I, I know patients that go to certain centers because they do get access to alternative types of therapies where they don't get everywhere, you know? Like if we could find a way to do that across the board, and you know, this is this is why I said before, you know, we were, I was joking, but I wasn't joking. Like, I don't care. We bring up every topic. This is what this is about is information. But, you know, it would be so great that we wouldn't have to do that if that, like when you walked into a center, like, hey, you got something on alternatives, 
you know, for treating cancers and, and clearly for pancreatic cancer, because that's our focus, but all cancers, right? And so maybe we'll get there one day, hopefully sooner than later for families fighting. Um, but, you know, this is what the podcast is for, to bring up these subjects and to talk about these things. What you're asking for is like, like a complete different approach to everything in this country, because I agree with you. I wish there was that balance of care across America and it's not. New York has incredible doctors. There's incredible universities there and there's incredible universities in California and other states, but not every state has that same level of care. And for a, for a national healthcare process to work, because I come from one, it's gotta be all, all in. There can't be like all these like little side deals, like all certain doctors cannot be part of it or certain people can get their own private insurance. It doesn't work. It's either we're all in it together or it, that doesn't, it doesn't work because then there's always something. There's always another area like right now, Greece has a national health care, <laughs> but then everybody's buying private insurance, private insurance. Yeah. You can't even afford it. Right. The people that can afford it, buy it. So it, they don't have a national health care. And it's one of those things that has to be all in all parties, patients, doctors, medical systems, hospitals, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies. We have to all have that same core value. And we don't. We don't have the same core value. So how can we have a sustainable national health care where everybody has access and we put so much attention on preventative and that somebody in Indiana and New York can get exactly the same care if we don't all hold the same core value. So this is why I believe it's much bigger than just medicine. We don't have the same core values in America. And that's what guides systems, core values. And that's a much deeper rabbit hole. <laughs> Are you making a list of all these rabbit holes? That's podcast number two. But, but, uh, but on the core values, I do want to stick on the core values here and, and something that came up before. So you said intuition, um, you know, is really what drove you here. My experience and doing what I've done here over the last four years, as I've said, talked to a lot of survivors and also other people that have come on and had life experiences. And um, my question to you is, and I, I wrote this down before, because it's this attitude, this mindset. I know we mentioned that term a bit. And then this intuition. I know you mentioned you were born in Greece Can you look back? I mean, it's hard to say like there was one incident or, you know, a couple incidents, but is that kind of like family trade or family attitude or how you were brought up? Can you look back and kind of point to, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, but things that happened to you early on that created that attitude, that mindset and gave you kind of that intuition? Um, yes. I don't know that anything was taught to me. I, I know that 
from a really young age, I would listen to my intuition or I would voice things that were instinctual that I would say that about possibilities of let's say something that would happen in the future. And like one example, one day I went to, I was in fourth grade and I went to my teacher and I just, he was like, he was good friends with my dad and they were like chatting outside of the school. And I lived like, was like buying a donut and like the little cafeteria at the elementary school. And then I walk up to my teacher and my dad and I just beeline to my teacher. I look at him and I say, you're going to die in two months if you don't stop smoking. And then I walk away. And like, it's like this out of nowhere thing. Like, why did I say that? I don't like, it wasn't even like, I was just like in the process, it came out of my mouth and I continued on. And I had a couple experience, like experiences like that when I was a child where I said certain things. And what I noticed is that my parents didn't say, don't say that. You're not supposed to say that. Why would you say that? My parents, my father was curious. He said, why did you say that? Where did that come from? And then I said, oh, I don't know. The next time it happened was when I woke up and I wore all black and my dad was like, why are you wearing all black? I said, because grandpa's going to die today. And then my grandpa died that day. And then my dad was like, how did you know grandpa was going to die? I said, I don't know. It's just, I woke up and I had this thought that grandpa was going to die. And I just put on all black because that's what we do in the Greek culture. We wear all black for 30 days when somebody in the family passes. It's not that something somebody taught me to listen to my intuition. I think it's something we're all born with. And as we start to become more and more part of the world, and it starts with kindergarten and going to school and, you know, being taught by teachers and like getting into like a form, getting into like a process, like a school system. And then you get into like the work system and then you get into your corporate job and then you get into university. There's all these like ways that we should be that have already been decided. And then they start to form humanity. Whereas I think from my experience as a child, here's something that was happening and that I've spoken to a lot of people who have had these kind of experiences in their life. And instead of my parents saying, don't do that, that's not appropriate. My parents became more curious and would just cultivate that. And I remember at a very young age, my father, I would ask him a question about something and he would turn around and say, what do you think? I don't know, dad, I'm, I'm like six. I, 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 that's why I'm asking you. But my father would always cultivate my what like my peculiar mind instead of trying to shape it especially at a, at a young age that i didn't get punished for having intuitive thoughts which then became a safe space for me or didn't sort of like get trained out of me if that makes any sense and when you asked me that question that's the first thing i i thought of because this i started listening to my intuition and these thoughts that I had at a really young age and I trusted them. So when I got to the age of 18, I've already had like over a decade of trusting this inner voice hmm. of believing in it and operating from it. So to not operate from it for me is, is odd because in the few moments that I haven't listened to my intuition, I was like, Oh no, we're not going to listen to that right now because I didn't want it to be that way. And then it, it didn't turn out so well. 
I have no one to hold responsible other than myself. I knew in those moments, I had that thought, I had that red flag come up. And if I didn't listen to it, it's nobody else's fault, but it's so easy to put fault on someone else, to put fault on a system, to put fault on another person. When the reality is we have so much power, but we're constantly giving our power away. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy to hold on to your power, but it is possible. And it's that constant practice every single day of kind of like checking ourselves and saying, you know, it. I had like a four-year span where I had acknowledged that I had a, a little bit of like negative self-talk as I was coming of age. And I was so curious and fascinated about it that I started to do this thing where, and I talk about this at, at length in my TED talk, where I would say, what was that? I would have a thought and I'd be like, what was that? Oh, it was a thought about so-and-so or this thing. But why did you have that thought? Oh, because of this. Yeah. Okay, cool, Christina. But why? Oh, because of this. And I would just keep pushing myself to get like deeper and deeper and deeper until I got to the root. And I would ask myself, but why, but why, but why, but why three, four times. And it constantly was coming back down to like three or four things. And I was like, Ooh, there's the root. This is not going to change till I deal with this. And if I don't deal with this, I'm going to keep being the reflection of these three things and different ways and different colors with different masks. And that was so clear to me that we are all a product of our experiences, but it's up to us to not be a product of our experiences, which is why I created the platform. My scar is sexy because I had this physical scar and I had a choice. Are you going to let this scar decipher how you feel about yourself? Or are you going to have power over the scar? So when I was 18 and facing sort of negative self-talk about body image, which is normal for most teenagers at any time, I decided I was going to become the woman that did not have body image issues because of this scar. And I knew that I wasn't her, but I was going to work every single day until I became her. And at some point I became her. I became who I wanted to become. I became the woman that did not get controlled by her 13 inch scar. I don't have shame around it. I don't desire to erase it. I love it. And it became like, my scar is sexy. My scar is the sexiest thing about me. Like I wanted the thing that was most shameful to become the thing that I loved the most. And at that point, I knew that I could have my power back. Instead of this thing, the scar, this experience having my power, because here's the thing that I believe. Either we will be the reflection of our scars or we will heal them and become who we really are instead of being the reflection of the scars. So powerful. Um, I was writing a bunch of stuff here. I got a question. I have two questions that came up. I, I have like four questions left. So <laughs> this, okay. is, this is awesome. How much has faith been a part of your life? And I want to see if this ties into something here. And I say faith like religion. Religion? Oh, religion. 
No, not so much. I don't think faith, for me, faith is not religion. And, so this, did, then, and I should preface that I've had so many questions about religion and faith and spirituality that I went to study theology and I got a master's in consciousness studies and theology and philosophy because I had so many existential questions that I figured, of course, I'm going to figure this out if I go study theology, which just opened up a million other questions for me. But this is a topic that I'm very curious about. For me, faith is not religion. Explain that. It can be religion. Because, okay, well, let's just go to the word God. I believe that there are as many definitions for what God is as there are human beings on this earth. I can mm. never know, Dino, what your definition, what your psycho spiritual or physical experience of the meaning of God is. Just like I don't believe anyone can understand mine because you're not in the experience of being me as I'm not in the experience of being you. And God is such an unknown thing that we all subscribe to it in a different way based on our culture, our upbringing, our families, our organized religion or lack of. Um, and for me, faith is beyond religion. Religion is small. Religion is here of the mortal world. Faith and God is potentially immortal. So for me, they're very separate. So, and thank you for the explanation. This is where I wanted to go. I wrote this earlier, and I say this because of my upbringing. I'm first generation Italian. Faith and and believing in a, a higher being, going to church every Sunday was like what we did as a family for 18 years, and then I did it when I went into college for four more years. So when you were telling your story about the intuition you had of wearing the black with your grandfather passing away, because you know your dad said that, like, well, your dad said, why are you wearing black? And you said, because grandpa's gonna die today. I got goosebumps and I just got goosebumps again saying the story because I guess for the audience listening at home, if you, if you're, if you don't come from, uh, an ethnic background if you're American, maybe this would, that would sound kind of crazy. To me, that's not crazy. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very similar experience that I've, not similar, but I've heard similar stories in my family of like when my aunt's son died, how my mom, you know, there, there, there was a bird that came to the house and that was nesting or, or sitting on the back porch. And that was a symbol of something bad to happen and lo and behold, a couple hours later, my mom gets this call from her aunt that her nephew died, right? Call that intuition. Um, I think culturally, you know, it's these old wives' tales or these things that happen, right? So for me, I guess the question then, do you feel that with your parents cultivating that intuition is like almost like a culturally advantage because your dad was Greek? And because I think there's certain cultures, Italians, Greeks, Portuguese, that have that, like they they accept that intuition, maybe because of their experiences, or maybe just because of culturally, that's what's happened throughout history of those cultures. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, 
I can see how in the Greek culture, there's certain, there's boundaries even with intuition. Like I'm sure if I said that to another Greek person, they'd be like, what do you mean? Don't tell them yeah. that. Why? Like What's yeah, right yeah. You, bad little Greek girl, you know, yeah, yeah. Whereas my mom and dad were just very progressive and just very unique. And I call them hippies. I mean, they're not, <laughs> but they're just, their mindset was more open for their open. Yeah. More open. My mom's an American. My father is Greek. So the, the sheer fact that my father married an American woman at that time and didn't, you know, decide to marry the arranged marriage and like said, (laughs) was already like, this is who my dad is. He was already a rebel and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So it's like, so my mom, and here's my, my mom, who's this progressive American woman and educated and now living in a little village in Greece and met my dad. So they were already in an interesting combination for their time. And they raised us differently. And I grew up in a household with two different religions while I lived in a country that was extremely dogmatic. Mm-hmm. But I had two religions from the beginning. So that's why I never subscribed to one because my family was able to coexist happy with both. It was never like, you have to be this, you have to be that. We're all. And yeah, like when you see the certain bird and it's like, ooh, I know what that bird means the Greek culture does have some of that. I mean, you know, we have our coffee, flip it upside down and yeah. in the coffee mugs, you know, like, Ooh, you're not going to believe yeah. what's going to happen. You know, it's like, Oh goodness. So there is some of that, but there's even boundaries of that in the Greek culture. And I mean, I don't know. I, I feel we're all so connected. We're all connected. We all feel like James Hillman talks about the inner daemon, this, this, your soul, like I, I wish we would put so much more value on this inner part of us that does have so much genius, has so much ability to connect to people across the world and feel how they feel. I mean, it gets really like into like other categories of conversation, but I, I very much believe it. It's like, why do you think about somebody and your, their phone rings and your phone rings and it's them. I was just thinking about you. Have we ever stopped to like say like, what's that about? Like that's something it's not coincidence. Cause I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe that exists. Coincidence is the mortal way of just subscribing some reason. Cause we need mm-hmm. reason. We have a very right. difficult time as humans without reason. Reason. Yep. We need reason because if we don't have reason, then that makes us face this reality of we live in a groundless existence. We don't know at what point we're going to die. We subscribe to reason that we're going to die after 80 or 90 because that's what most people die. But the reality is we don't know when we're going to die. And we don't want to deal with the fact that death could happen at any moment. And that is fair. Because that's the nature of death. Death doesn't give a shit about your agenda or your goals or what you want. It just arrives. It doesn't care about your needs or your wants or your loves. It just arrives. And for me, I always like to say, I shook hands with death and we renegotiated my spiritual agreement. (laughs) And that death haunts me because I can't forget that she exists. Mm-hmm. 
And that's probably allowed you to live the way you've lived life since. Yes. Which most people don't. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, and then maybe some people probably wouldn't want to live the way that I live. Correct. But you, you, I, I, I very my, much live how I want to live. Correct. So how many people, like we could ask, like, again, I, we were both overseas, like it's people work, you know, people that what's the old adage, like the corny analogy here is like in the United States, people live to work. Oh, there yeah. they work to live, right? Like, you know, it's, 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 it's a mindset, which we we've talked about, you know, and, and, and stuff. And I like to tell people that I work to travel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me, which... like one of my priorities is travel. travel. I, it's like a focus of mine. Like I'll sit down and spend eight hours on like Googling flights on Delta. I'm like, okay, we have four new countries. We're going to go to this year. What are they? Sit down, book the tickets done. Like it's, it's such a priority for me to just do something that I love. And that's, that's living. It would, yeah. Like meeting other people in other parts of the world and like really like investigating what it's like to live in Morocco or like, what is it like to live in Egypt or the Philippines? It's different. It's so different in so many parts of the world. It's so wonderful. Awesome. So I, I've got two questions left, but I, I do want to ask this one before I get to those two. And I've seen this often, and I want to ask this question if if you if you've ever thought of this or if anyone's ever brought this up. I looked a little bit at your bio, looked at a TED talk, so knew a little bit of backstory. But you know, here we are. We've been talking almost an hour and thirty minutes, which is crazy because it seems like it's like twenty minutes. Sometimes I see these arcs like journeys, like, you know, I can see someone's, you know, life in a very short span because I'm taking notes. And I wonder, so here's the question. I wonder if you've ever looked back at, you talked about like, so if we start the arc here on the left-hand side as a child, having this intuition and trusting that intuition and buying into that intuition early on, right? In life, I'll bring up the story about your grandfather because we brought it up before and how that like was like, like, I wouldn't say that was the oh my God moment, but one of the times that you mentioned that was like, hey, I got to really trust my intuition. And then as the arc goes up, you become a teenager and you have this traumatic event at the time, which is called pancreatic cancer, which is almost, I guess we could say kind of the tipping point, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense of like life changes, it's dramatic. And then now you shift and you face your scars and you build this platform and you talk about this and you're on Ted talk and you know, you're on our podcast, which is probably at the, at the end of this here, but you know, all the things you've done since you were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer to where you are today, your travels and your life. So I, I guess the, the analysis here is like all these things, like that intuition, if you didn't have that intuition experience early on, then you battle PC and that intuition experience, which was the experiences from before, got you to where you got through that experience. And then now all the things you're doing throughout life. So it's just, a, to me, I guess as an outsider and as an as you know someone here listening to, it's pretty wild to see, like kind of connect the dots mm -hmm. of the experiences you had in your life and what you said and how that has kind of led you through this path. 
And I don't know if you've ever sat down and, and thought about that or if anyone's ever mentioned that to you. I have not been asked about that. I don't think about that because I just live it. And there's a difference. I'm not in awe of the connect the dots because I'm trying to understand why people don't think we're all connected. I'm trying to understand the opposite. Most people are like, oh, ah, like look at all these dots and how your life's unfolded. And I'm like, uh, hello, that before we came, like before we came here, like, had, like, like, yeah, that's obvious. And like, for me, it's not, for me, that's normal. For me, what's abnormal is to not connect the dots. For me, what's abnormal is people that don't listen to their intuition and don't, I, I like, and I get it because it's scary and it's painful and it takes a lot of courage to live this way but I've gotten so used to it that for me, it's normal to live my life this way. What would be more painful for me would be to sit in a job that I know doesn't make me happy, or I know that I'm not meant to be in it because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. Being in a relationship that I shouldn't be in living in a place that I know I shouldn't be living in like that for me is more painful because I am aware that I'm BSing myself, but the dots thing Call it like, it's kind of like when you're born, you're given this um, like, like Google Maps and your route is already there. And someone's like, hey, here's the app. Just follow this map throughout follow your life and you're solid. But just don't add any extra stops or don't change. <laughs> no, don't put me on the highway. Go on the highway. And like, for me, that's what it's like. Like, it's so easy to live when you just listen, we make it hard because we let our brain get in the way. We let these parts of ourselves that we don't want to heal, don't want to see, start to control us. And that's when we start to make decisions that are not in alignment with ourselves, with our soul. And that's when we start to hurt and we're self-hurting. But how do you get from one to the other? That bridge is painful. It's, it's a, and it's a lonely bridge because there's no one that can help guide you to that bridge. It, it's like when I walked down that tunnel, when I was really facing myself and I, I really committed to facing myself. And part of it was Christina, you got a second chance at life. You are not going to be yes, the second act of this. Otherwise, then what was the point of saving your life? Really thoughts I would have. I was like that exact thought I had, you're not going to waste this life. You got a second chance. You didn't deserve it unless you live it. So deal with your stuff. And I walked down this long tunnel of darkness and like fear. And it was so, it was one of the most courageous things, way more courageous than having a Whipple surgery. Having a Whipple surgery was easy compared to like facing myself and facing my scars and facing my self opinions of myself and facing my inner self talk and facing the reality that I was pretending to be one woman versus the woman I really was. And this is everybody. We all have masks. We all have masks. And that is the most painful experience of my life. But oh my goodness, like the freedom and the liberation and the, the joy and the euphoria that like you can feel. And don't get me wrong. I still get mad and I still have bad days. It doesn't mean like you don't have like that stuff, but you get out of that stuff quickly. It doesn't take power over you. It doesn't control you. You have a moment, 
you cry it out, you scream it out, you vent it out, and then you keep going because you find that joy quicker. You don't stay in the rut. And that for me, like now I'm just like, all right, well, you know, we're going to end this podcast at some point soon. And then I'm going to be like, what are we going to do next? <laughs> and like, just kind of like, let it just unfold. It's so much more interesting that way. So much more interesting. I love it. And <laughs> this is really wild. Uh, Cause my next question was going to be, what's your best advice? And you just answered it. <laughs> um, so I, I, that that is really wild that that just happened, Christina. So, like, thank you for. But doing is that. it Tino? Is it wild, or did I no. know you were going to ask me? Right, you probably. I'm yeah, connected right now, and I like I don't know, like I wasn't consciously tapping into anything. No. But what's that about? Right, like, like I, my best advice: don't worry what it's about. Just be it. Like, just, just be it. Whatever. Just like listen. So my last question. And then we want to share with our audience if they can connect with you, where to find you online, social media, on the website, watch your, watch your TED Talks on YouTube. This is a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. But given your experience, what you've gone through, how do you define the term pancreatic cancer? What is your definition? Ooh. Okay. First thing that's coming to mind is pancreatic cancer is this thing that happened to me that removed five of my organs, but it no longer defines me. There are days, Dino, that I forget I even had it. There are days I forget that I don't have five of those organs. And that to me like I literally could cry saying that to you because it is like the most beautiful feeling in the world to forget that something so traumatic, so scary, that threatened everything you had, that threatened all the love you experienced with like your family and your friends and your mom and dad and brother and sister, something that was so terrifying and was like this darkness that I don't even remember it happened because it's not now. It's not now. I'm healthy. I and it's so hard for me to even say I'm a pancreatic cancer survivor because it's almost like it almost like like the word survivor is for me sometimes it's like holding on to this story. And I don't want to hold on to the story. I'm just ebb and flowing through the story. And at any point, the story is different. And it's so fantastic when I forget. I forgot my anniversary one year. I was like, oh my gosh, my, oh yeah, my remission was, oh, it was yesterday. And it was such a great thing that I forgot because it means that it doesn't own me. It doesn't control me. It means that I'm healthy. I don't think about it. And that is the best feeling in the world. It's so powerful. And something I said before, it's that release. You release the the care to your doctors. You you release the cancer, like it's not here. It doesn't define. You live. It's it's how we all should be. Mm. Christina, thank you uh, for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. If oh, our audience, thank you for this, having this, me. This has been awesome. 
if our audience wants to learn more about your your works, your TED Talks, uh, where's the best place for them to connect? Two places. You can go to my website, which is christinahelena.com. And then I'm on the Instagram. <laughs> uh, my handle is I am Christina Helena. Awesome. Christina, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dino. It was a pleasure to be here. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you heard today, feel free to share this podcast and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. <laughs>